0: Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. All right, we are reading today firstly from Zechariah uh, chapter 13. I think if you've got one of our church Bibles, the page numbers are on the screen. There's also Bibles at the back. Um, but if you've got your own Bible, Zechariah 13, on whatever page that is. All righty. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, their father and mother to whom they were born will say to them, You must die because you have told lies in the Lord's name. Then their own parents will stab the one who prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of the prophetic vision. They will not be put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. Each will say, I am not a prophet. I am a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. If someone asks, what are these wounds on your body? They will answer, these wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will put into the fire, I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is our God. The second reading is from Mark 14 verses 27 through to 52. So Mark 14 from verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the, man, the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests The teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then the man seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, followed. was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind.
1: Morning, everyone. Who's excited about Easter? I certainly am. Uh, I'll be... Um, I won't be here actually I'm going to be heading on a holiday with you remember Dave uh, my younger brother he was here at the sort of the start of this church plant and he needs to take his ex-army Land Rover from Melbourne to Brisbane Uh, so as long as COVID doesn't shut things down uh, we'll be doing a a bro road trip uh, over three days from Melbourne to Brisbane but Easter is a uh, I, I guess it's, really the, it's a, a really important um, calendar event uh, for Christians every year, a bit like Christmas. Uh, Christmas is when God became man. And then Easter really celebrates why God became man. And it was, uh, it's all around the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which are sort of the, the linchpin, the, the sort of foundation of what it means uh, to be a Christian. Uh, and so we're gonna look at an event that happens just before Jesus' death and resurrection this morning, uh, when Jesus actually wrestles with, should he go ahead with uh, the death uh, that on the cross? Uh, before, before we do that, let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you have given us your word and uh, in the Bible we can read about how you became a person and how you lived on this earth and how we can see God, what you are like uh, in the form of a person. Uh, and we thank you that uh, we get an insight, as we will see this morning, uh, into the Trinity, uh, Jesus relating to his Father and how uh, Jesus wrestled with uh, the, the weight of going to the cross and uh, paying the punishment for all of our sin that we've committed. Uh, So please help us to understand uh, this this morning uh, and to be inspired because you give us so much hope through this story as well. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to talk a lot about uh, temptation this morning because Jesus faces his greatest temptation uh, in his life so far, uh, and so we're going to look at why is temptation so powerful? Uh, why do we so easily um, seem to be fooled by sin? And how do we overcome temptation? Chapter 8 is uh, the halfway point through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And it describes how Jesus changes his focus uh, in that he's heading towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And in the following chapters, he describes to his disciples that he is going to go to Jerusalem, face suffering, face rejection from religious leaders, die, and then rise again. Uh, The disciples find this very difficult to understand, but we see that Jesus, two things, I guess, Jesus' mission is all about people in the Gospel of Mark, and secondly, he's much more than just a good moral teacher. In chapters 11 and 12, uh, that we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw how Jesus met some self-important religious leaders and they had some crafty questions they wanted to try and trap him with, but he answered them with wisdom and authority and left them silenced and even amazed at his answers. And then in chapter 13, Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem would fall and the temple would be destroyed and that happened uh, roughly 40 years after jesus prophecy but jesus also made a prophecy that one day he'll come back as judge of the world Uh, and so given one prophecy happened in detail and it occurred we also need to be aware well jesus is coming back as well and be prepared to meet him and then this chapter that we're in today earlier in the chapter he's given an anointing which this woman says is for his burial, for seeing a future death, and Jesus says this death will be on the behalf of many. And so we see from the book of Mark, Jesus is no ordinary man. He speaks with authority, he he acts with authority, he does a lot of supernatural acts, and so he's God in human form. He's sovereignly in control of human events. And he's in control again uh, in this passage today apart from a unique section uh, in the middle where he's surprisingly weak and stressed. And uh, on the other hand, the disciples as usual are making a bit of a mess. Um, And so this is the contrast of today's passage. God is in sovereign control versus the weakness and inability of humans. The first section we wanna look at is verses 27 to 31. And I've titled this as Jesus Knows Your Journey. And that's because Jesus has a confronting conversation with his disciples. He quotes Zechariah 13.7. Jesus says, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Zechariah is a book in the Old Testament, and it's written to encourage the nation of Israel that Uh, God is in control and he is going to act on their behalf. He is going to send them a good shepherd uh, and this shepherd or the Messiah, um, that suffering will lead to ultimate victory. Kings are referred to shepherds in the book of Zechariah and other Old Testament prophets and they're responsible for the sheep, the, the people under them. And so bringing all these clues together we can work out that actually Jesus was saying a prophecy made in 520 BC, when Zechariah was written, was being fulfilled in his day. And so he's saying, I, in other words, God the Father, will strike or put to death the shepherd, who is Jesus, and the sheep, that is the disciples, will be scattered in all directions. Now, essentially, he's saying to his disciples, you're going to desert me. But Peter is adamant that he will be faithful, uh, even if the rest won't be. He says, even if everyone else falls away, I will not. But Jesus surprisingly and bluntly contradicts Peter. He says to Peter, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me, not once, not twice, but three times, now, from Mark's account, we know that there was a midnight sort of rooster crow, um, probably a bit of a sleepy rooster crow, and then later there was uh, the second rooster crow, is a, is a one in the morning. So Jesus is saying to Peter, "You're going to deny me three times in the next 12 hours." This is probably very horrifying and even shocking to Peter because he's been with Jesus for three years. He has. It's been 24-7, not just a monthly barbecue. You know, they have slept, uh, they have eaten, they have gone all around Israel together as this band of 13. And Peter himself was part of Jesus' inner circle. Uh, and so he just thinks, maybe Jesus didn't hear me. Uh, you know, Jesus, if I have to die with you, he says, I will never deny you. And actually, all the other disciples said the same thing. Unfortunately, uh, Jesus' prophecy is fulfilled, and they all desert Jesus later in the garden, as we read at the end of our passage, and Peter, in particular, uh, spoiler alert, um, he denies Jesus three times uh, later in the Gospel of Mark. So Peter is devastated at this point when he he realises that he has denied Jesus three times Uh, and he realized that all of his brave statements were really just the fluff of intention without action. But I think we experience the same thing. We often have great intentions, and then temptation comes along and we fail. You know, how many times have Uh, you or I struggled with some action that we know isn't gonna please God or we just know is not right and yet we find ourselves coming back and cycling and repeating that same issue. And the disciples were warned by God that this temptation was coming, but they still failed. I think this section gives us a lot of hope because the first one is that Jesus knows us better than anyone else, including ourselves. He knows your struggles. Uh, he knows your, the secrets that not even your closest friends know, and that's because he's God. He knows everything. He can read your mind, and he does read your mind, and that may seem really embarrassing, uh, but the good news is that Jesus isn't out to embarrass us. Uh, he, we find something absolutely amazing in what he says to the disciples, that After he prophesies about their unfaithful desertion, he says, after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So he knows that they will fail, but he gives them hope. Uh, He promises to stay with them. And this is borne out in history. After Jesus rises again, we see him meet them in Galilee and he has a meal with them. He's eating, he's talking, uh, spending time with them again and comforting them. But Jesus doesn't excuse our, uh, their de- desertion, but he's still loyal despite their unfaithfulness. And from a big picture perspective, this is really a message of the whole Bible. It's of undeserved grace. Uh, God is, failure is not final with God. God keeps on giving. And Jesus is honest and encouraging to us before we sin. Um, and he, but he doesn't change after we sin. You know, Failure doesn't actually affect our relationship. He's not shocked um, because our relationship is not dependent on our performance but on our relationship with him that we are his sons and daughters in Christ. The next uh, section of this passage, verse 32 to 42, is a unique one because we see Jesus at the weakest in his life. And I think the, the message for us here is that Jesus loves us deeply. Jesus is at a place called Gethsemane. It means oil press and it was a grove of olive trees at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And it was a special occasion because he took the three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, and they'd been specially selected on other occasions. And we see Jesus is in a great state of distress Verse 33 says, Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Now something, Jesus has never acted like this before. Something is going on here that is just so deep we can hardly imagine it. Uh, and this Greek word for greatly distressed actually means that it can be a, um, either someone is really surprised uh, or fear, or perhaps a mixture of both. And in Luke's account, Jesus, it says Jesus was sweating blood. Now that's a medical condition called hematidrosis, I've probably mangled the um, uh, pronouncing of that word, but it's, it's very rare and it only happens under extreme, extreme stress and it's when a person is at the very limit of bodily stress and their um, capillaries engorge with blood and then blood actually comes out of the sweat glands. So what would, why would Jesus be in such a state uh, if he knows everything? It's because Jesus is about to experience something that he's never experienced before, either as a human or as God. It's totally alien to him. And we find out what it is through his prayer. He says, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What is the cup that Jesus is talking about? Well, Jesus has said that he has some great distress coming prior in his ministry. uh, And he doubted that any of the disciples could drink this cup. And some people think that maybe it was the betrayal and and the terrible scourging and mocking that he experienced and, and the horrific death on the cross, one of the most painful ways to die in history. But many other people have experienced these things and have not sweated blood. I think the answer is in the Old Testament. In ancient times, the cup of poison was the method of execution for many people. And the Hebrew prophets used to write about the cup representing God's wrath on human evil. So for example, in Isaiah 51, it says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And then in Jeremiah 25, another book, it says, the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. So it's associated with the, the judgment of God Uh, And it's a right anger that God has uh, against sin. Sometimes our anger can be selfish, uh, but God's anger is right and it's just against evil. And the cup of wrath is also seen in the New Testament in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, uh, where those who ignore God and reject him will have to drink the cup of God's anger. So why is Jesus facing God's wrath since he lived a perfect life? Well, the cup of wrath always comes because of sin, and so Jesus is bearing God's wrath, the sin of the whole world, on our behalf. Now, you might be wondering, why does God need to be so angry? If he's a loving God, why can't he just forgive people for what they've done? And I think to answer that question, we need to understand the character of God. And the character of God can be described as having three Um, Attributes, and these are all complementary. God is holy, he's perfect in character, he's separated from all that is wrong, he can't stand the presence of sin. God is just, he's perfect in his justice and he's totally impartial. And God is love. He has, uh, the, the Godhead, the Trinity, has loved each other from eternity and God loves us. And God's wrath is closely linked with each of these aspects. Because if you get rid of God's wrath, God is actually less holy. How does that work? Well, if God isn't rightly angry with evil, as he should be, and he just brushes under the carpet or ignores it, then he's not perfectly good in his character. And surprisingly, if you get rid of God's wrath, he's a less loving God, because a God that merely just forgives evil loves you in a, a hazy sort of generic way but we see that the way that Jesus was stressed about the wrath of God that he had to bear that that meant that God's love is really costly because the greatest expression of someone's love is to love uh, in such a way that you give up your life for them and Jesus died in our place but Jesus did even more. He received the holy, just, right anger of God against our sin. So the answer to whether, someone can, whether God can just forgive uh, our sin without punishing them is really tied to whether God is just. Because imagine if uh, someone stole all of your life savings and you went to court and the judge asked you to just forgive them. Well, I'm not sure that you'd be very impressed with the justice of the court, but also you would have to bear the cost yourself, somehow find money to eat to pay your rent. So forgiveness always costs the forgiver and it often costs other victims of the crime as well. And we all yearn for justice and because God is a good and, and holy God, he also is highly concerned about justice and someone has to pay the penalty for what we've done wrong. So God's wrath is necessary because it links so well with his holiness, his justice and his love. So what happened then when Jesus faced God's wrath? We will have a look at this next week but we know that when Jesus was on the cross he made one cry, an absolute shriek of agony where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think that gives an insight as to what it means, why Jesus was so stressed about this time that was coming. And that was because the wrath for the whole sin of the world, for every human being who has done wrong was poured out on Jesus instead of us. And because God can't stand the presence of sin, God forsook Jesus, God separated Jesus. The the Trinity was broken. But what does this mean for us? Well, we deserve punishment for what we've done wrong. And we see in this historical account, Jesus pays the price for the wrath of God in our place. And so the outcome for us is that we can be saved from God's right anger against the wrongs that we've committed in our lives, but also to see the motivation for God doing this. God does this because he loves us deeply. God is saying to us when Jesus is on the cross, when my son, Jesus, cries out to me for the cup of God's wrath to be avoided, I remain silent. Why? Because I love you that much. And when God, when Jesus cried out to me, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Once again, God the Father remained silent. Why? To convince us that he loves us. In fact, the cross is the supreme demonstration of God's love for each one of us. It's almost like God loves us more than he loves his son. It's amazing. Jesus says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. It's, I find it really fascinating that Jesus asks his heavenly father if there's any other way to resolve this. But God remains silent and I think the implication is enormous because it means that there's no other way for our sins to be forgiven. You know, it's very popular these days for people to claim that there are multiple ways to approach God. But that means that the things that Jesus suffered were not necessary. It doesn't really make sense of his state of stress for, uh, normally, if you see the the person of Jesus throughout, he is calm and in control and has extraordinary wisdom and supernatural power because other people have suffered and yet they haven't stressed like this and so that it makes the most sense that his death on the cross was bearing the wrath of God for our sin. Today's passage is about God's plan in jesus death and the weakness of the human heart and so let's look at the disciples what do we learn from them in other words what do we learn about us in the middle of his most stressful period of his life jesus stops to talk to his disciples and talk to them about temptation and he says the way to approach temptation is to stay awake or be alert and pray and he tells them that three times And the reason, he says, is so that they won't fall into temptation. Now they're tempted multiple times in this passage. They're tempted with social pressure uh, to be associated with Jesus. They're tempted with to use man's method when met by force, to meet violence with violence. And so we see, uh, that's not Jesus' way, but Peter, when approached by the mob, with clubs and swords, he pulls out his sword and starts fighting. And he fails the temptation. And then they're also tempted to follow their physical urges when they needed to have self-control. Luke's account says they were exhausted from sorrow. Why were they sorrowful? Well, perhaps not just a couple of hours earlier, uh, the Jesus had said to them, One of you, one of the twelve that he had spent three years with, would betray them. That had created an enormous argument. And then they've never seen Jesus like this before. He's in such a state of weakness and stress. Um, What is going on with their leader? And it's also night. So even though Jesus has asked them to stay awake, they're tired and exhausted. And so they just followed their physical urge. And we face the same temptations in different ways of social pressure, of trying to solve our problems without God, of physical and mental urges. And the Bible says the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So how does Jesus help us to cope with temptation? I think it's three things. He leads by example, he says to be alert, and he says to pray. The power to overcome temptation comes from prayer. The passage says the disciples could not stay awake. And that Greek word for could not is actually used earlier in Mark 9 when the disciples could not heal a young boy and they come to ask Jesus why. And Jesus says your powerlessness is because of your prayerlessness and that applies to this situation as well. And so Jesus' model we see is the more stressed he is, the harder things get, the more earnestly he prays. And so when we're most afraid of the future or most concerned about finances or anxious about work or struggling with a sin we keep repeating, that's the time that we need to be most urgently and earnestly in prayer. Jesus' great temptation is not to die on the cross and bear the wrath of God. And he asked to be removed from the situation, for God to do it any other way. But God doesn't grant that. So his reaction is submitting himself to the will of his father. Not my will, but yours be done, he says. And we all face this struggle between my will and the will of God. And Jesus unconditionally submits himself to God's will. It wasn't easy, but God gave him the strength to overcome uh, his, the temptation and to trust that God's plan was even better. Now we need um, frequent prayer as well because Judas knew that Jesus was going to be in this garden of Gethsemane and we know from other references that Jesus spent a lot of time there praying. And I think that is also a key, that, that our prayer needs to be frequent, uh, alone or with others, and in addition to prayer, Jesus says, stay awake or be alert. Prayer and alertness in some ways are like the two wings on a plane. Uh, that It won't stay in the sky without one wing. And so what is it? Well, first of all, why be alert? Well, the Bible says that we are to be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Be firm in your faith. We are, despite looking around the world and thinking we are in a physical world, that's true, but we are also uh, in a spiritual war. The devil doesn't want you to seek after God and he's quite happy with you doing anything other than that. So how can we be alert? Well, a man walked into a medical centre and he said, Doctor, doctor, I got my arm broken in two places and the, the, man, uh, the doctor said, well, don't go to those places then. But seriously, I think that joke actually helps us to see that there might be practical boundaries uh, that are part of conquering temptation and recognising that there are often certain routes that temptation takes, uh, and that for us might mean avoiding certain places or getting an internet filter or finding some productive task that will help us to use our time wisely. And then I think there's mental awareness and alertness, to be aware of the deception of temptation because the power of all temptation is when I'm convinced sin will make me happier. And so, But if we read the wisdom of God in his word and understand that we can discern where sin leads, its end goal, its destiny and why it's so damaging to us in this life, And so it helps us to to, uh, face temptation if we're not deceived about where it's gonna lead. And alertness is also more than mere intention. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, Jesus said. Are you too tired to do anything productive Uh, sometimes? Are you too tired to read your Bible or to pray or too tired to love your neighbor? Jesus says, well, it's, it's going to be hard work sometimes to push through the mental barriers uh, about doing the right thing. God doesn't want us to waste our time. We're to devote our lives to growing personally uh, in God's character and then building God's kingdom. When the disciples slept, they missed out on one of the most important times in all of human history. So stay alert and pray. Pray to avoid temptation. Finally, we have verses 43 to 51. And I think this is about Jesus responding to you with grace. The Next scene really is quite gripping. It's got all the um, uh, ingredients of uh, an exciting movie. There's a sword fight, there's a betrayal, there's an arrest, and then there's people running for their lives. And it starts with quite a menacing scene. There's a mob of chief priests, scribes uh, and temple guards and they're armed with swords and clubs and they're approaching through the darkness and you can barely see anyone under the gloom of the olive grove trees. And so Judas has organized a signal. He says, I'll approach Jesus, I know what he looks like in the darkness. I'll greet him with a traditional greeting of rabbi, which means teacher and then I'll give him the traditional kiss, and then you can arrest him. And this happens, uh, and Jesus doesn't resist. Uh, However, I wonder whether Judas brought the mob with the swords and the clubs because, not because of Jesus, but because of the disciples. Because we know from other parallel uh, accounts in the other gospels that the disciples asked, Jesus, are we supposed to fight our way out of this? Uh, But Peter, uh, he doesn't stop to ask questions. Uh, He's sort of the shoot first, ask questions later, or since it's 33 AD and it's got swords, it's sort of slash first and ask questions later. And he has a go at the nearest servant, and um, he's maybe a little bit rusty with his skills, and so he cuts off the ear of one of the temple servants. Now, Jesus stops Peter, calms him down, heals the ear, uh, ask questions to the mob and, and then he's arrested and it's too much for the disciples and they run away. I think the most remarkable thing here is how Jesus responds to everyone with grace. To Judas, who's been with Jesus for three years, uh, Judas, he, he turns on his master, Jesus of all people, uh, with such evil, uh, betrays him with a, a kiss and Jesus takes it graciously without a word. And to the mob, he asks them directly, why didn't you arrest me in the temple? Uh, they don't reply, but we know why. In, uh, earlier in the gospel, it says that they were afraid of the people and that's why they were coming to arrest him at night. And to Malchus, that's the name of the temple servant, He'd come to arrest Jesus, and then he'd had his ear cut off. And even though he's come to arrest Jesus, Jesus heals his ear. And to Peter, Jesus rebukes his show of force and then solves the problem that he's caused, the physical injury. But also to everyone, to us, to the world, Jesus shows grace because he yields to the arrest, knowing that it's part of God's plan and goes to the cross. And this is Jesus' poise from now on until the cross. He's had his time of wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's decided that God's will is best uh, and he is confident in that. Now Peter, our hero, Peter had been sleeping when he should have been praying and talking when he should have been listening and boasting when he should have been fearing and fighting when he should have been surrendering And then he deserts Jesus. And then later he denies Jesus three times. But through all of this, Jesus responds with grace. But it's worth asking us, when do I ignore my need for prayer? When do I boast in my ability? When am I embarrassed to be associated with Jesus? Today, in this passage, we've seen that uh, just like the disciples, every day we fail to live up to God's standard. But this passage gives us so much hope because we see that Jesus knows you better than anyone and yet he still wants to be with you. His relationship is not dependent on your failures, it's dependent on you being one of his sons and daughters. And then we see Jesus loves us deeply because he drained the cup of God's wrath completely on our behalf. And we see Jesus coping and helping us with temptation to be alert, to pray, to submit yourselves to God's will. How are you growing in prayer? How are you staying alert to combat temptation? Perhaps you need to put some boundaries in place because the spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. When God doesn't answer your prayer, do you still submit to God's will anyway? And finally, we looked at how Jesus responded to each person with grace. Do you receive God's gift of grace? And will we help each other as a community to combat temptation? Uh, Let's pray before we celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper and sing together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in control of all things, uh, and we thank you that you submitted yourself to the Father uh, on our behalf, that you drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Uh, We thank you that you were delivered into the hands of sinners so that sinners, like all of us, can be set free. And we're just inspired by the way that you uh, reacted to betrayal and accusation and physical violence, Uh, and we ask for you to help us to be, uh, to stand firm and to be faithful to you, to be honoured to be associated with you. Heavenly Father, we want to um, help people to meet you from all nations. Uh, Help us to point people uh, to see the answer to life rests in you and that you have experienced human life uh, and that you have loved us and still love us deeply today. In Jesus' name, amen.